Our meditation for this Septuagesima Sunday is on our epistle reading. Hear the word of our Lord from the epistle of 1 Corinthians, beginning in the ninth chapter and 24th verse. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Septuagesima is a fancy word meaning something like 70. On this day we observe that we are about 70 days out from Easter meaning that we can begin thinking about Ash Wednesday, about Lent, and the intentional practice of spiritual discipline that helps us in our walk with Christ throughout the whole period. But as we begin to think about what kind of Lenten discipline or Lenten sacrifice we may take up, there is a warning we ought to hear. The best way to express it is through a little story about a golfer. I'd like you to imagine a man who loves golf. Oh, how he loves golf. He looks up to legendary athletes like Phil Mickelson and Billy Casper and Sam Snead. He watches every PGA tournament and he cherishes the 100-year-old five-iron he inherited from his late grandfather. Golf is life to this man. Now, we shouldn't judge or make fun of him for having his passion. There's nothing wrong with having a hobby or a passion, after all, so long as it doesn't define us. But let's imagine that our golf hero has a competitive spirit. One day, he finally works up the nerve to enter a tournament and test his mettle at driving, putting, and going for that birdie at every hole. He signs up early, and he is given six months to get ready. Now, if he has six months to train for this golf tournament, how should he go about it? We should expect him to spend every day at the range, working on his aim, his swing, and his drive. Like any other dedicated athlete, we would root for him to go out in any weather to practice so that he can do his absolute best, right? Well, our golfer has other plans, though. He figures he already knows that stuff and has no need to practice at all, even though he has never actually played golf before. 
For him to be really ready, he decides he has to swim. Instead of picking up those clubs and driving out to the range every day, he drives to the community center and does laps in the pool. Thinking about this poor man, we are left dumbfounded, watching him swim lap after lap, confidently smirking to himself that those other golfers won't know what hit them. He is fully convinced that he will get first place without actually having to practice. Beloved, what do you think will happen when our friend goes to the golfing tournament? Well, he will get last place. Sure, his cardiovascular fitness was fantastic. He was reasonably strong, and his joints felt great from all that swimming. But the poor guy couldn't put a ball into a hole even if it was right in front of him. He had no abilities whatsoever that actually pertained to golf. So he lost. Duh. Now, we can laugh at the silly golfer all we want, but this week, countless believers, half the church even, are planning on earning their salvation when Lent starts. They may hear their priest say that today's reading means we must reach a goal of salvation by starving ourselves, whipping ourselves, muttering the same prayers incessantly, and so forth. The Eastern Orthodox churches will insist that when St. Paul speaks of running to obtain a prize and training to box properly, that somehow the apostle means forcing yourself to suffer so that your mortification purchases a spot in heaven. Countless Roman Catholics will start praying their rosaries with extra devotion in the hopes that they can chip away their time in purgatory. Some of the more traditional Protestants will join in with the misguided belief that these disciplines will make them holier, thus increasing their chances at having more saving faith, as if faith was earned through works. Ironically, their misuse of this text makes them like our silly golfer friend. It is as though they're swimming to get ready for a golf tournament, or training for the Iditarod by riding horses all day, or even going to the boxing gym to get ready for a foot race. Oh, and how hard they work, how much they suffer, all for the goal of getting something that they will not receive with these disciplines. Beloved, a man who spends all his life believing that prayer and fasting get him to heaven will go to hell with an empty stomach and a hoarse throat. We think of these disciplined people as somehow more holy than us on account of their ascetic practices, when half the time they are reaching for heaven by all the wrong means. Fasting does not save you. Nothing about being hungry points you heavenward. Nor shall charity save you. Poor people can say thank you, but they cannot bring you to the throne room of God. No amount of praying makes a man a saint, for his many words shall not amount to anything without faith. We are justified before God by faith alone. There are many Buddhist monks out there starving and praying and doing charity work, and God does not count any of that in their favor. 
There are many mystics sitting down and meditating for days on end, but God does not care how well they can stare at their belly button. There are atheists diligently studying the Bible while resisting the call to convert to the only true religion. But without their hearts turning to our Lord, all that reading is worthless to God. Without faith in Christ, all of these practices are complete and total wastes of time. Just think of it, beloved, how St. Paul brings up the ancient Israelites in this passage. They had the direct presence of God. They had a kind of baptism. They ate spiritual food and drank from miraculous water, and they learned to observe all sorts of great ceremonial practices, something our modern monastics would positively beg to experience. And yet despite this holy calling and this holy way of life and the holy discipline required to do all of it while spending decades in the desert, God was displeased with them and overthrew them in the wilderness. And most of them appeared to have been damned. It was not their rebellions that damned them, for they received absolution time and time again. It was not some imperfect discipline that condemned them, because the vast majority of their time sojourning was under the supervision of Moses himself. It was their lack of faith in the true God that did them in. We know about the golden calf incident. We know about the grumbling, about the complaints and the rebellions they enacted in the wilderness. But Moses writes about these events as, suspenseful moments in an otherwise terminally dull, predictable existence with rote obedience and observance to the Sinai Covenant. They lived a basically monastic life punctuated by the occasional rebellion. Yet no matter how much they ate that manna from heaven, they did not get closer to God. No matter how many sacrifices they made day in and day out, that made them no more acceptable to our Lord. They lacked saving faith in Christ, even when he was right there with them. If they had trusted in God fully, if they had understood that the exodus from Egypt meant that our gracious God loved them unconditionally and one day would send a Savior to pay for all of their sins forever, then that generation would have entered the promised land and become great role models for us. But alas, their stubborn yet fickle loyalty, one day to law and ceremony, the other day to sin and uprising, showed their true unfaithful colors, and they were extinguished. Now please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that engaging in spiritual discipline is sinful. In fact, it can be beneficial when used for its intended purpose. If you truly understand that Christ has died to pay the penalty for your sins, if you believe in his resurrection, and trust that belonging to him means you will rise again to everlasting life, then you are saved already. Once we understand this and we rejoice in the gospel, we can then begin to think about what we will do for the season of Lent, and begin that journey with the right goals in mind. 
In the context of 1 Corinthians 9, St. Paul is speaking about being disciplined in his goal of preaching the gospel by any means necessary. It is for this very reason that in verse 27 he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He does not discipline his flesh to be saved, but to make sure that no temptation overtakes him to engage in heinous sin, thus disqualifying him from preaching further. St. Paul does not want to be a hypocrite, visiting prostitutes or gorging himself on the hospitality of those listening to him, or failing to pray for success in his mission. That is where these disciplines come in. Fasting and prayer and good deeds and extra scripture study, all the things we do during Lent, they help control the appetites of the flesh so that the baptized believer is better able to serve Christ. Salvation is not the aim here. We are to assume and rejoice in our heavenly destiny. But on account of that very salvation, that change in who we are and what we are, we want to accomplish things for our Lord. The old Adam, our sinful flesh, gets in the way of that though, doesn't it? Our hunger makes us grumpy and impulsive. Our lusts distract us and our busyness keeps us from reaching out to God with every need that we have. When aimed at the right purpose, the Christian spiritual exercises are no longer exercises in futility, like a golfer spending all his time swimming. To the contrary, they become vital disciplines for building up self-control and earning fantastic heavenly rewards that we cannot even begin to imagine. And those rewards, being eternal, are worth far more than the greatest crown or trophy here on earth could ever be. Now the peace of our Lord, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.